First reading comes from Luke chapter 10 from the verse 25. I'll give you a moment to find it. Luke chapter 10 from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, good day. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the ministers here at Samats. And for the last couple of years, I've been going to a gym here in Manly. There are now actually over 500 of these gyms across Australia. And last year it was named the fastest growing fitness franchise in the world. Because in just the, the first seven years since they started, they've now got over 1,700 gyms across 45 countries, which when you think about it is kind of ridiculous. Now, one of the reasons people attribute to their success is the unique brand of hospitality they offer. The emphasis that they put on welcoming you welcoming you into a community. It's interesting, isn't it? And at the very least, the surging popularity of gyms like mine suggests that we now live in a culture that is starved for connection. We long to know and to be known. And we've kind of been missing that. It's interesting, since 2010, the population density here in Sydney has increased by almost 20%. And it's actually double that in some suburbs, like Shelley Beach in December. And yet even though we're getting physically closer, socially, we only seem to be getting further apart. Now, one of the reasons for this is technology. Bruce spent a fair bit of time walking us through that a few weeks ago. We're spending more and more time online. We're consuming more media on more screens and then Things like AirPods help to encase us in our own little private space, even when we're out in public. You can blame Apple for that one. Another reason is our relentless pace of life. Like 
by us trying to jam more and more stuff into our already overstuffed schedules and by our difficulty to rest. Deep, genuine relationship, it takes slow and restful time to develop, doesn't it? And these days we just don't seem to have the time for that. You know, even our architecture reflects our culture's retreat from public space. I took a look at my street this week and the old houses still have usable front yards, which are kind of open to the street, but all the newer houses had either turned their front yard into a car park or they'd whacked up a whopping great fence to protect their privacy. It seems gone are the days of sitting back on the front porch to catch the breeze and chatting to the neighbours over the fence. Now we kind of shut ourselves inside, don't we, to stop the aircon from escaping. We spend time in our backyard with our sweeping decks and our solar heated pools, our own little slice of secluded tranquility. If I just described your place, I'm not having a go. Actually, I'd love an invite. But it's fascinating, isn't it? The way that even our architecture has come to reflect this cultural shift. And the numbers are suggesting that we're struggling with this shift. In 2018, the Australian Loneliness Report was released and it revealed that one in four of us are lonely. Over half of us say that we lack companionship at least sometimes and 30% reported either only having one friend or no friends who they could call for help. When it comes to our relationships with those we live closest to our neighbours, the stats are pretty startling. A third of us have no monthly contact with our neighbours and almost half of us don't have a neighbour we'd be comfortable calling in an emergency. Who is my neighbour? Well, the stats suggest many of us don't even know anymore. But the idea of neighbour sits at the very heart of our passage today and is the topic for the fifth week in our series. What are you doing? If you're joining us for the first time, we've been spending these last weeks just exploring what it looks like to grow deeper in our discipleship to Jesus. You know, what are the things, the practices? What's the way of life that's going to help us to do that? Today's passage is easily the most famous exploration of the idea of neighbour, and it's here in Luke chapter 10. Kicks off um, with a lawyer who comes to try and trap Jesus. Verse 25, take a look. What does he say? Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's hoping Jesus is going to say something about believing in him so that then he could go and accuse Jesus of trampling the law. But of course, Jesus sees this coming and he sidesteps the trap, actually affirms the law. Love God and love your neighbor. So the lawyer's trap fails. Instead, Luke tells us that he then tries to justify himself. Who then is my neighbor, he asks. So he's hoping Jesus' answer might prove his own righteousness and confirm his place in God's kingdom. But instead, what does Jesus do? He answers the lawyer by telling him a story. And I've got to tell you, it's one of the most radical, outrageous and over-the-top stories I think Jesus ever told. 
tells of four people who are making the 25-kilometer trip from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was a 3,000-foot th- descent, so it's pretty steep. The first man is caught by robbers who beat him. They steal everything from him and leave him half dead on the side of the road. A second man is also on the road that day, a priest, and he is the first to come upon the injured man. Now, in Jesus' day, lots of priests actually lived in Jericho. They'd serve for two weeks up in the temple in Jerusalem, and then they'd return home. That's what this priest is perhaps doing. He's on his way home. He comes upon the injured man, but instead of offering to help, he just keeps going. Jesus doesn't tell us why, but presumably the priest figures that it is just too risky. There are too many unknowns. For instance, he can't tell if this man is Jewish, because if he was, the priest would be bound by law to help. But there's no way of easily working it out, because the three things you would usually use to kind of tip you off is the man's clothing, the language he speaks, and the accent he uses none of which were available. Also, he couldn't know for sure why the man had been left like this. Perhaps he was a terrible sinner and this was just a just punishment for some ghastly crime he'd committed, like the priest couldn't know. Lastly, the man may actually already have been dead. And the priest couldn't work that out without going to him and touching him. But to touch a dead body would actually defile the priest and make him unclean. And that would force him to have to return to Jerusalem for a week of purification, back up the hill, an extra week away from the family. Is it really worth the risk? So many unknown. So the priest decides to walk on. Then comes a Levite. Levites were temple assistants. So Perhaps he's returning home from the temple as well. And he may even know that there's a priest on the road up ahead of him. So when he comes to the injured man, not only does he face the same unknowns as the priests, but he's also wondering why the priest in front didn't stop to help. Who was this Levite to intervene if a priest had refused? See, it's safer if he just pretends to not notice the man as he comes to him and just walk on past. Too many unknowns, too many risks. By this point in Jesus' story, two people have walked past. The lawyer is expecting that the third will stop. But there'd be no chance the lawyer would be expecting that to be a Samaritan. You see, Samaritans were bitter rivals with the Jews. There was plenty of animosity and hostility between them, sometimes even violence. At one point in the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, it says this, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Safe to say they really didn't get along. Not at all. And yet, this is the one who Jesus says stops to help the injured man. He tends to his wounds. He loads him up onto his own donkey, which of course means that he's got to walk the rest of the way to Jericho. He then spends the night looking after this guy. 
The next morning, he leaves a chunk of change with the innkeeper and he promises to cover the cost of the rest of his recovery. Wow, it is spectacularly over the top. Jesus' story ends with a radical, outrageous and entirely improbable act of hospitality. And it's in the face of enormous risk and significant costs, like the Samaritan is traveling through enemy territory. If he's stopped along the way carrying a half-dead Jewish man, who's going to believe his story? He spends the night in a Jewish city with every possibility there'd be an angry mob waiting for him in the morning, and he leaves the innkeeper with a blank check. Whatever it ends up costing, I'll pay it. It's crazy. And don't forget, he, he still does all of this for someone who is his bitter enemy. That's what's so extraordinary. He replaces hostility with hospitality. Go and do likewise, Jesus says. We go, oh yeah, okay, no worries. Love like the Good Samaritan, okay, got it. You know, the Jews in the first century go and do likewise. It's about as scandalous and improbable as when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you remember that encounter, when he says, go and sell everything, give to the poor and then come follow me. I only noticed it this week, but the two conversations, this one and that one, are almost identical. They start with the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Both of them try to justify themselves in following the law. And Jesus' answer to both the lawyer in today's passage and to the rich young ruler is virtually the same. You assume that you can earn your way into God's kingdom, but you can't because you cannot keep God's law. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked Jesus. Who isn't? Comes Jesus' reply. Even the worst of enemies should be showered in your love. Jesus paints a picture of radical hospitality and, and of enemy love, regardless of the risk, regardless of what it costs. That's the kind of love God's perfect law demands, and it is utterly beyond the lawyer, and in truth, it's utterly beyond us as well. Turns out there is only one with the kind of love that is as radical and limitless as the Samaritan in this story, and of course, that's the storyteller himself. And in fact, as radical and outrageous and improbable as the Samaritan's hospitality is, it's got nothing on God's hospitality. It, Jesus doesn't just risk his life for you and me, he actually gives it up, doesn't he? As Paul writes in the book of Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave up his life for his enemies. In place of hostility, he offers us hospitality. And it's not just a home-cooked meal that's on offer or the binding up of our wounds or even the promise to forgive all of our sins. God offers us an eternal seat at his table 
not at his guests, not as his guests, but as his sons and daughters. Think about that for a moment. God welcomes his enemies into his family. Isn't that extraordinary? And he invites us in, regardless of the risk, regardless of what it costs, and with no expectation that we will pay him back. You know, that's what makes the gospel story a story of God's radical hospitality towards those who don't deserve it. You know, the crazy thing is, when you accept his offer and are welcomed into his family, that radical, outrageous, and improbable love that you've received from him, it actually starts to flow out from us. His welcome of us begins to transform the way we welcome others. Because you see, those who are in God's family are now on his welcoming team. It's like my three boys at home. You know, whenever there's a knock at the door, almost without fail, they'll drop whatever they're doing and race each other to be the first to open the door. Now, it's almost never for them. And so they'll often just awkwardly, you know, abandon the guest at the door. If they've left you hanging like that, I'm sorry. We're working on it. But our boys are a part of our family. And that means they're on the welcoming team. So it is with us. And God. Paul in Romans 12 captures the kind of love and the kind of welcome that now characterizes God's family. He says this, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. The Greek word that Paul uses there at the end for hospitality is philozenia. It literally means love of the stranger. And it describes a radical openness to create welcoming space for the outsider. That's space in our homes and space in our lives. At its root is the very same love and compassion that drove the Samaritan to stop and help on the road to Jericho. It's the very same love and compassion that drove Jesus to give up his life in order to welcome enemies into God's family. It's gospel-shaped, grace-fueled hospitality. Friends, the truth is there's never been a better time for us to be honing this spiritual practice in our lives because our culture, it is parched for genuine connection and relationship, for a place to belong, for a place to know and be known. And it's the gospel story and the company that the community, sorry, that it creates, us, God's people, his church. This is actually the only place that that has the power to truly quench that thirst. The danger for us, of course, is that we become less like the Samaritan and more like the priest or the Levite, so wound up in our own affairs, so risk-averse, anxious about the unknown or about 
those who might be somewhat different to us in some kind of way, you know, that we stop stepping out, we stop looking around, we stop opening up. And friends, when we allow that to happen, we dim the light of the gospel. Because you see, it's our community, it's our warmth and our welcome. It's the way that we love and embrace and sacrifice for those we don't even know. That is the blazing beacon of the gospel that should be lived out in our lives. And you know, it has an enormous power to break through the darkness of our world. So, what could that kind of welcome look like? Kath, one of our sisters, is going to speak through some of the practicalities straight after this. But here are my five simple hospitality hints for us to finish off with. First one, heart and home. When we hear the word hospitality, we usually think of hosting people for a meal, and, th and that's true. And that's exactly what a whole bunch of us from across the mats are going to be doing next weekend. Unfortunately, the sign-up window for that has closed. If you're sitting there today and going, man, I really wish I'd sign up for that, you can totally still organize something yourself. And that would be a great thing to think about doing. Hospitality is more than just a meal, though. It's, it's as much an attitude as it is an action. When we open up space in our hearts to welcome the outsider, it actually starts to reshape a whole bunch of things. The way we listen and the way we speak and who we're willing to do that with, it will reshape the way we spend our time and our money. It'll reshape our prayer life and our weekly rest. You know, the, the Samaritan manages to show remarkable hospitality without even using his home. We can do it with a phone call, with a thoughtful text message, or running an errand for someone. When we open space in our hearts to welcome the outsider, when we make it a way of life, everything changes. Number two, look for lonely. Have a quick think. Who do you know that needs to be welcomed in? Seriously, have a, have a quick think. Who do you know? They're not just outside St. Matt's. They're in here as well. And too often, we just don't see them. Or when we do, we can always find plenty of reasons to not offer the invitation, can't we? But those of you who are great at this, who've been honing this practice for years, they're always on the lookout for those who need an invite and they can spot them in a moment. And they don't just notice, but they act. And so for many of us, half the battle is simply that we're not aware. So we might just need to look up and step out a little more. Number three, fight easy. It is always, 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 always going to be easier to just hang with your people, you know, those that you know and that you feel comfortable with already. That's always easier. But if we allow ease to call the shots on when we're going to practice hospitality, 
then we never will because it will always be easier to not. So fight easy. Like any of the spiritual disciplines, expect that hospitality will take time and effort for you to develop within your life. And it's going to take you being intentional because hospitality is never accidental. Number three, accept risk. Just like it'll never be easy, hospitality will never be totally risk-free. There's always going to be some kind of unknown. That's actually just the nature of welcoming the stranger. And if you find the unknown makes you anxious, guess what? You're just like everyone else. It's a natural part of this. Start slow. You know, maybe just begin with welcoming the outsider here at church on a Sunday where you might feel safer. And remember, what is unknown to us is not unknown to God, so entrust it to Him. That doesn't mean we should be reckless or take foolish risks, but to embrace hospitality is to actually accept the fact that it won't always be comfortable. And that's what makes, that's what makes it so powerful. Number five, let go of perfect. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that our house has to be perfect or I've got to be perfect before we can go and open ourselves up to others. But you know, some of the warmest welcomes that I've ever received have been in ramshackle huts on the mission field because it's not our nice things that make the welcome. It's the love and the warmth of the one who welcomes. So let go of perfect. A great idea I found this week is inviting people around for a leftovers dinner where everyone just brings whatever's in, in their fridge. Now, I love that idea because life is messy and so are we. The power is in the sharing, not the perfection. Let go of perfect. I want to finish off by introducing you to a family friend of mine. This is Petra. She grew up in Bayview, actually, but she's been living in the States for the last 30 years. When I think about radical hospitality, I, I think about her. She was younger. She went on a mission trip to Africa, and her eyes were open to the tremendous need that was there. God planted in her heart the desire to adopt. So she waited for a husband, a husband that God still hasn't given her. Eventually, she realized she actually just couldn't keep waiting, so she decided to adopt anyway. A single woman, half a world away from her family, living comfortably, but certainly not rich. So many costs, so many risks, so many unknowns. And yet she couldn't shake the feeling that this was what God was asking of her. And so she did. She ended up adopting three young boys from war-torn Sierra Leone. When she went to get them, they were malnourished. Two of them had tuberculosis and not one of them knew a single word of English. Can you imagine? People thought she was crazy. You adopted three, one friend said to her. Well, I guess you can't take them to Disneyland then, and you won't be able to put them through college. She's like, yeah, okay. 
If they're alive, I call that a win. After the first 18 months, she said she was so struck by the change in them to their, to their health, to their sense of identity. They were learning and laughing and full of life. One day she, she was suddenly struck by a thought, don't stop yet. There's still room for more. <laughs> so over the next five years, she ended up adopting three more boys from Liberia. Seriously, she was a single mom with six boys under 12. The physical, mental, emotional issues she has had to face with them have been immense. And yet, God's looked after every step of the way. There was such a groundswell of support from her church family and even from the local community. She said she, for the first six years, she didn't even have to buy a single piece of clothing. There were that many donations. Of course, she never knew that was going to be the reaction before she went and decided to do it. Today, her youngest is now in year 11. They all made it through school. Some of them are even now in college. Fancy that. When we chatted this week, the thing that struck me the most was how matter-of-factly she spoke about all of it, as if it was just totally normal. She certainly wouldn't consider herself to be radical or remarkable. She's just been shaped by the radical and remarkable love of God. Really, she's just been willing to be open, to look up, to look out at the need in our world and to be ready to welcome whoever God brings her way. Brothers and sisters, who are the strangers? Who are the outsiders? God is calling on you to welcome.